Hello, welcome back to the Artistically Arts Mirrorcast podcast, and this will be a short intro as this is a very, very long interview. I have tried to edit most of it, but there is quite a lot jam-packed in, and I hope you're going to enjoy it. If it's a lot bigger into parts, maybe spread across few days, and make it so it's bite-sized, and hopefully you can listen to the whole episode and enjoy it as well and enjoy it and please let me know if you listen to it and please have a friend to this hope you can enjoy the podcast thanks very much this episode is with Mitchell Bowerman next week it's with Harrison Arbier this episode with Mitchell Bowerman talks about the cerebral palsy autism and PTA as well as many other things and I hope as I just said I hope you enjoy it and as it says here, it links in a bio for where you can find our find the social media channels and get in contact with the podcast in the about section of this episode. And where you can find Matilda Bowman on social media. How were you diagnosed? When I was 14, I started to show signs of like um anorexia and so and also I had other mental health disorders I was bullied and then I developed depression anxiety and um anorexia and during my therapy when I was 15 my um my therapist realized that I her methods weren't working as such because I had very rigid thought processes and she realized that yeah I wasn't really listening to her information and she thought that I I showed criteria for autism so then I got referred to this center which I'd used in the past for being cerebral palsy and then yeah I was diagnosed before my 17th birthday. You were diagnosed before your 17th birthday and when you were 14 you started to see the signs by your uh, psychiatrist or doctor is it? Yeah so when I was when I was 14 it started to become clear that I my autism become more prevalent which is quite common to have more mental health disorders hang on can you just like repeat the last point of it because it's you you cut it out i feel like it's quite common for um autistic girls for their traits to become more prevalent when um they reach adolescence because it's a big hormonal change but also in their teenage years just like holistic girls they really really struggle with their identity. And I know a huge part of that is masking. How do you think like there was uh, some signs and traits we missed over the years before you hit 14 and like it started to show? Yeah, when I was younger I didn't like certain television programs because of the bright CGI and I also hated cause and effect toys because of like I have a strong starter reflex but that's also due to me being cerebral palsy. I didn't like because I used to jump at sudden noises or movements. I also used to become very attached to certain objects. This washing machine from my doll's house, I used to take it everywhere with me. I used to like take it to bed with me. <laughs> and my parents were like praying that it never got lost because if it got lost, then 
there would be meltdown. I did have meltdowns a lot due to routine harassment or troubling stimuli. I, I still do, but I, I used to get very attached to my teachers. I found out on the morning of school that I had a supply teacher. I would have a complete meltdown. And my mum would usually have to collect me from school because I'd be hyperventilating in a toilet, you know. So yeah, also I I probably had, I, um, my PDA was quite obvious, so pathological demand avoidance. I like, w I would always want like ask for the toy that we hadn't seen in years or ask to um, imaginative play and used to be quite like treat it like it was a, TV show or a film, which obviously, like, stereotypically, autistic children aren't meant to be good at imaginative play, so that that probably worked against me being diagnosed. You've mentioned that you got diagnosed with uh, pathological demand avoidance. Can you tell me what that is? Well, I'm not specifically diagnosed, but I felt like I have mild, kind of, I do show signs of it, so electrical demand avoidance is when it's kind of like, you do the opposite of what you're meant to do, and you, yeah, you don't, you try and um, avoid demands and do stuff when it's like, um, you know, in, inappropriate, so like yeah. I might, I might underneath the table for food, oh. and I, and I spoke her, and yeah. I'm not meant to be doing that. Oh, sorry. Could like you kind of cut out for like I don't know, it was a fight for ten seconds. So could you repeat the uh, last few like last sentence of a song? Yeah. Some sometimes I I do stuff that I know I'm not meant to do. Like I I might stroke my dog at dinner time when I know that she's just surfing under the table trying to get food. <laughs> Yes, would you find, like, would you find that there could be, in, like, an overlap, like, or, like, what, with, like, pathological demand avoidance and autism, and what, and how do you distinguish the traits of the two conditions, or what do you know about the two? So, I think that, like, um... Uh, PDA is more common in autistic girls, which is why I think um, girl, like girls are less likely to be diagnosed because although there are similarities with autism, there also are autistic signs. For example, that autistic um, people thrive on routine, whereas PDA people thrive on novelty. Interesting to cure the overlap. Oh, that uh, distinguishing point. Be quite charming and social, which again, kind of yeah. Yeah, it was quick. It's good to hear you thought of that. And and what was it like uh, being under ignored for so many years, like ahead of your teenagers? As you said, you like uh, like developed eating disorders and like had experiences with anxiety and like he had consequential effects on mental health. Well, and trauma being undiagnosed before. So what what was it like yeah. getting to that point of like needing the, the diagnosis then? Well, I guess, I mean, not having a diagnosis, it's just, I kind of self, well, I kind of, it kind of taught me to self-love because I finally knew that why, like I had certain traits and you know, I, I probably wasn't. But then I also, I guess I felt, angry that I hadn't known later on, you know, that 
I mean that earlier on because that would have saved me a lot of trauma and also I would have got more support and it, it was like I'd been denied a key bit of information about myself for all these years. Understand that because it's definitely a struggle if you not known all those years and like as you said yeah. you've been masked and you know like it like caused negative effects on you mental health and yeah, I they know and they know like uh, I went to ask you what like um you do a lot of uh disability advocacy on Instagram and stuff like that you know you say a lot about disability so like I went to know why language is important to you and the language be used around disability and how do you and why do you prefer identity first language I think identity first language first of all I think our self-concept and how we how society perceives us as well um the yeah the adjective cerebral palsy was actually invented by um my english teacher who also has a, a cerebral palsy relative and i because we agreed that cerebral palsy isn't something you can cast off it's not a disease and i think that my disabilities dictate a lot of who i you know some people might not want their disability to be their master status but you know i think that there's so much miseducation about disability and so many people feel alone and i just want to tell them that they're not a people which is you know why you know why i'm doing this podcast today because because I connected with you and I also connect with people who have younger children who are cerebral palsy and autistic who are going through the diagnosis journey, you know. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's important, as you said, to like, ha- have a conversation around this and, like, you know, talk about, like, what more language and, like, how to, like, start to communicate or, like, a positive conversation around disability and, like, how, like, it is a part, part of you and, like, it is something that of who you are and that, that's yeah. something you're proud of. I wouldn't really know who, you know, if I wasn't disabled, I don't know what parts of me would be the same and what parts of me would be different. It's just... You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because like you know, like sometimes you know, like people do think, oh, you know, like you know, how would you think you'd be like be like different if you like weren't autistic, for example? And I know, like you do question it yourself, and I think I know it. I know now, I would be a totally different person, and maybe like like not exactly the person who I am, or like you know, like at all. You know, it does make you who you are. Yeah, like you, you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want to be holistic, though. You know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, what would you say, like, are like your favorite things about being autistic? Then. Well, I would say one of my favorite things is that I'm hyperlexic, so I love language and I have a very advanced vocabulary, um, which can annoy some people and they're like why can't you just use a simpler word but yeah Uh, i'm also very empathetic um which can be draining definitely but also means that you know at a party like i'm i'm great fun to be around because people i my energy is contagious (laughs) and yeah and i and i'm and I love being part of such an amazing community and um, being able to share our experiences. I'd least say the empathy is something that people don't easily 
understands about being autistic and one of the common misconceptions because I think a lot lot of what people don't understand is how, how highly empathetic we can be. But I think it's like we've just so in made so weird and expressed it in a different way. Yeah, I think it's almost seen as like, you know, the opposite of what people think that autism is. It's like you can't be empathetic because you're autistic, but hyper empathy, which, which can be difficult sometimes, because I, I just sometimes I just it kind of causes me physical pain and I can't sleep because I'm like, what if my teacher is overworking themselves or something? So <laughs> yeah. that can be hard. And yeah, and I mean it does have its like yeah. pros and its cons, you know, like because you know, like can be draining and like if you like. Getting quite feeling quite emotional and you know like you know empowered by something and like especially stuff like if it's out of your control. Yeah, like I can't. Yeah, I can't really control how other people feel. I can try and help them, but I don't want to then put myself at risk because some things are out of my control. But I don't. I don't think I want to be apathetic because that would mean I get no enjoyment out of life you know yeah of course it's and then just, i'd struggle to connect with people yeah it's just sometimes it's like hard to find, find that balance because sometimes you know like it's like something you can't control but you know like as you said something that can be betraying at times and cause feeling feel of like emotional burnout yeah like i can't i can't really turn it off even if someone says oh you don't need to worry about it i'm like i do I need re- reassurance from the person that they're okay. And at least not when the thing you went to the talk about is autism and w- women and girls and something you passed about us. Like you said, you have like experience of like some, you know, uh, autistic girls can relate to like being a hyperlexic, very, you know, uh, into books and reading and stuff like to, you know, like having challenges with your mental health and eating disorders. So I want yeah. to ask you what things treats normally flagged up in women and girls that can differ from boys and men who are autistic and how how do they get overlooked? Well, I would say obviously, you know, PDA um is something. I would also say that girls tend to have more socially acceptable special interests so like fashion animals pop culture rather than like you know this is this is quite you know this is canalization but like boys tend to be more like trains and stuff and therefore you know seen as a nerd whereas it's like well all girls have their favorite pop star that they stick on the wall you know yeah um i want to yeah see if there's anything else in my notes i think it's also because they're quite good at um masking like they they kind of they they mask they mask all day and then they have a meltdown when they get home because they they can't compress it anymore or they're in a safe space. I think this, like, yeah. like I think one thing I noticed about myself, like, how, like, I found myself, like, masking, like, because I was, like, diagnosed at 10, and, like, it was only 18, I started to feel comfortable, like, saying I'm autistic, and, like, saying that to other people I was in school with or friends with over the years. So it's, I think it's one thing, like, I were, like, not then by that, I noticed I were, 
didn't fit the typical boy stereotype of it. And I think they're not that how we kind of notice that I didn't fit the kind of binary gender. And I think, like, it's a definite thing for when, like, what we tend to talk about, like, the stereotyped women and girls' presentation of autism and the, like, generic presentation of boys, boys and men. I think they're not vacancy or, like, more fluid or autism and gender gets. Yeah, and I also think there's a lot more, you know, um, gender fluidity if you're autistic, you know. Yeah, and do what? And even to ask, did what do you see as the lack of gender representation of autistic women? Well, I feel like it's, I mean, is why I because it was like you know like all these autistic characters like. Rain Man or Christopher Boone, they're like, they're male and they're also created by holistic authors. So, you know, and I feel like when I'm searching for like um social media personalities on Instagram, I have to specify they're female, you know. I feel like, yeah, even if, if someone wants to make like a female autistic character, they'll like kind of um use like male traits to fabricate her you know which isn't that accurate yeah because obviously the the traits differ the um the traits in females differ from males so the way the way it presents is is different have you seen any positive examples of it starting to change or any figures that have like any female figures that have started to uh, gain representation for autistic women and girls yeah so when I was diagnosed, I went out and bought um autobiographies and also fictional books. Um, Hello? Female and autistic, and I really felt I related to that in terms oh. of masking. Can, can you repeat that a second? Because it was breaking up. Like being over gregarious, having, having like... um special interests but then worrying that they're weird but yeah i think you know it it's about us without us and, and actually unless that is actually created by autistic women it, it's not going to be accurate and sorry but it was speaking up a second what was you saying is the uh, positive uh representation that you were seeing what like what was the like the name of the book titles or the the authors and people who start? Oh, um, yeah, a, a kind of spark by Elle McDonnell um re- really resonated with me because Addie um has hyper empathy. She masks a lot. She's also got um a a bit a big sister who's autistic um that she gets on with um. And I'm a twin as well, but my twins, like, um, she has a, so she has an older sister who's autistic and then her, and then her twin is holistic and I have a twin who's holistic and yeah, it just resonated with me a lot in terms of hyper empathy, having special interests, um, being overly gregarious, you know, having, having meltdowns that are perceived as tantrums. I think it does really help to see people like yourself in media and in the books or TV shows that you read us, I guess. Like reading like a charm, I guess, helped you feel like you you wasn't alone in 
like experience in that and I guess it did have a create a big value importance yeah that's that's really important you know I I actually want to become a director and screenwriter so I can give um accurate you know um portrayals of neurodivergent you know characters and because go, growing up I had no I really had no you know um I didn't see myself in in, in fiction or in the media really affected kind of my self-image and the 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 representations of autistic characters that I did see convinced me that I wasn't autistic so they were quite misleading yeah yeah because it's like on the two sides you still have the you know like still have the only like a few marginal people you might see with like cerebral palsy or a few people with autism that you see like releasing books and on TV so like I guess you know you've been part of that with like screenwriting and you know like doing directing stuff you know writing a creative work to increase that representation yeah and so like what uh, what, uh, what can autistic women get get when getting diagnosed and what help did you find to help you get diagnosed and have post-diagnosis? Well, I I think, um, you know, like seeing other, like reading the accounts of other autistic women that I related to a lot more, kind of, I finally felt like, oh, I, I do identify as autistic. Yeah, yeah, they, those are my traits obviously not exactly the same because we're all different but yeah. yeah I think also having a emotional um support network is very important for autistic women um one thing that I found really interesting is that autistic women are often misdiagnosed as bipolar which because um both conditions can cause mood swings but it's interesting how and I wonder if this is just a sexist view that like women are quite skittish so it's like oh you know they must have a mental health disorder rather than a neurodivergent condition yeah and the thing is yeah because like from like a lot of autistic women I've read getting diagnosed like beforehand like years before they would get misdiagnosed with of a, like, uh, uh, mental health conditions as obviously, slavery, it's like depression, anxiety, OCD, other conditions that they may have. But, uh, you know, we're like, it's not the diagnosis that they may need to get the right answer. Yeah, I mean, some people believe that, like, um, that there should be, like, it should be a different diagnosis altogether because, you know, brain scans have shown that um, males and uh, females have different neuroanatomy. So, for example, like the way that maybe females are assessed, like, you know, having um, tasks that assess long term rather than short term memory, you know, during the autism assessment might be more kind of um, suited to females' skill set generally. Uh, so, like, do you think like like a like a separate diagnosis or like you know like listening to and include include different uh, criteria in diagnosis 
but help autistic women and girls get diagnosed. And do you think that's something that, you know, like GPs and general practitioners need to be listened to, you know, understand the traits of autistic women and girls? Yeah, because, I mean, I'm, I'm very thankful for my anorexia therapist that she found a correlation in that, you know. Um, I I think there'd be more research need to be done in that, um, to be honest. But I know that, for example, if I if I search Wikipedia and go come up with traits that I relate to, in fact, it's probably going to come up with traits that are the opposite of mine, you know. Yeah, guys, from what I could hear then, I guess it's like that difficult thing of like, you can have traits, but like it's like, you know, each uh, individual comes up with their own profile of traits then. So like then that, that can make it harder then getting the right diagnosis in that, is it, or something? Yeah, yeah. And so in the one thing, like under the topic of autistic women and girls, uh, oh, sorry. Is there, oh, okay. is there a sexism in the community? Have you, like, recognised on seeing any sexism? Um, I think, well, you know, um, just because men belong to a marginalised social group doesn't mean that they're not going to be sexist. And I feel like autistic men have um higher levels of, well, studies have shown that they have higher levels of testosterone um which mean that they may be kind of very driven um you know to participate in sexual activity and they might you know that may be their you know like the main reason that they want to be in a relationship and because you know autistic women are often very kind and you know like people pleasers they may you know, slightly take advantage of their girlfriends and not respect their boundaries, which is what I've what I've found from being yeah in a relationship. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like I think that area definitely do we see like more cause for concern and more like yeah, you know, like certain you know autistic women to experience like being like a baby more, and then there's definitely is. And then to uh, like community or of like my, probably a minority, but you know like some men will you know like you like use uh, like relationships to wrongfully abuse and stuff like that, as you said. Yeah, and um, you know because of their support needs or emotional needs, they they may want me to like. They may want their autistic girlfriends to mother them, which then becomes slightly, you know, inappropriate because that that's not really their role. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, one other things that I went to ask is what what did you find the com comorbid effects of the two diagnoses of being autistic and having cerebral palsy? What what do you think are the overlaps from the two conditions? And what was you like living with both of them together? Well, I mean, it, yeah, it's, um, I think being cerebral palsic was one of the reasons why, um, I, you know, my, um, I was so late to be diagnosed as autistic because, um, 
with all the therapies and medical appointments. Um, you know, cerebral palsy is such a big focus that any additional disabilities are just like overlooked. And but there are some, you know, some things like my strong starter, which I'm not completely sure is a cerebral palsy can already cause like um processing delay or sensory sensitivities so yeah they they do overlap because they're both neurological yeah i guess it's like the processing delays and do you think like the, like the processing delays can then affect how you react and move then yeah and like if i'm if i'm having a meltdown it's harder for me to um control um what i'm doing or or recover because you know on top of being autistic i've got um because i've got i'm spastic cerebral palsy my my tone is just right up so yeah then i um lose control of my vocalizations and it is very hard for me to relax i've kind of um described my spasticity is kind of frozen water like my muscles are fluid but then they 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 can just become rigid and it can you know be very hard to also it's like all one moment you can like feel a bit more fluid and it can uh, like it's you know like your limbs are moving quite flexibly and then they it's like then they freeze up all of a sudden and they kind of like close up yeah yeah yeah, exactly. And that's why, like, I'm not sure, like, if I'm anxious, for example, you know, is that just because of my muscle tone? Is that because um, I'm worried about accessibility errors when I go out in public? Or is that to do with my autistic traits? You know, it's yeah. difficult to know. And when I was younger and I used to have meltdowns, my paediatrician used to... Um, say well you know Matilda's just frustrated because she's cerebral palsy um but obviously it was because I was autistic but you know yeah I think that then that's probably like sometimes it's like some people with, with autism can you know like like get passed on from a, getting up a diagnosis because like it's like well it's the autism that probably could cause that but like I guess with yourself it wasn't like the autism, but it was like being said with Paul's like uh, that's probably like best off some of autism treats from being like recognised at an early age. Yeah. I'm yeah, sorry. so uh, you can finish off what you're saying, sorry. Um yeah, um you know, like um I feel like having a visible disability, I am lucky compared to my friends because you know out in public because people see that i'm a wheelchair user they automatically you know consider accessibility and um rush to you know assist me and i don't have to wear a sunflower lanyard um and out and about and I, i've always had support in um education you know i don't need to 
you know, explain why I'm using an accessible toilet because it's obvious. So, yeah. Yeah, can give me like it's like the challenge and we've been autistic. It's like somebody can't see your needs and what you may need help with or what you can and can't do. And like I guess we've been several polls like I think people can see that you like what you may need help with or like what accessibility needs you have. Set. Uh, so anyway, it's fantastic. But like how how would you say like is the main way like your cerebral palsy affects you if like talk if you've been talking about it just to get whole understanding of you know like where your experiences coming from if you don't mind um I would say that I I do experience ableism um being cerebral palsy you know with just accessibility barriers and also people kind of saying, you know, like, comparing me to people with, like, people who have cognitive disabilities and saying, well, you know, they can do that, why can't you? I'm like, because I have a physical disability. And, like, a lot of people think it's genetic or it's a disease. So I feel like every time I meet someone, I just have to, like... Yeah, I think also maybe people may not even realise that I have, like, self or social awareness like that I'm you know I, I'm I'm very much aware that I'm cerebral palsy and what that means for me and you know how how other people see me and I'm aware of that you know yeah. it is having having a physical disability does have challenges you know needing support with a lot of things physically um it's like having depression for I don't know whether that was because of well I think it was maybe a mixture of um being undiagnosed as autistic but also feeling ostracized as someone who was cerebral palsy and ashamed of needing a lot of physical support definitely like stuff like depression anxiety when you have a disability whether it's a physical one or whether it's uh, invisible and uh, neurological one like autism, even though, like, as I say, cerebral palsy and so being cerebral palsy is a neurological one, affects movement. And the case that uh, in down to an elitist ableism or living in an ableist society that can cause that feeling of depression and anxiety. Yeah, I think I definitely did have internalized ableism, you know. I um i didn't want to be seen to be disabled like i i didn't really want support but i realized that that was counterproductive because with not getting support you know i wouldn't like achieve a lot um you know and kind of like trying to look less disabled and you know just 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 denying that i was cerebral palsy can feeling ashamed of it rather than you know being proud of it which i am now yeah i mean it, i understand it does take a lot of work to work on when you as i say you know it's living in a blessed society and it's like when society isn't designed or like you don't feel like it's designed to include you or like accessible for you is then challenging on your mental health yeah you just feel like you have to you know fight for everything and just just because i feel like 
part of you know my depression is just because I was measuring myself against neurotypical standards and being like well why can't I achieve as much as them and why does it take me longer to do really simple tasks like writing things down but now yeah. I realize if I if I just use you know my own ruler for success that just you know won't occur because you know I'm I I'm neurodivergent, which means that yeah. it does take me longer to do stuff. And, you know, I do suffer from burnout. A lot of things, you know, I use three to five times more energy because of my spasticity. And yeah, no, I, I'm getting a lot better at advocating for myself. Being like, you know, I need this. Being cerebral palsy and autistic, it means I'm like this. But, you know... I wish that I could maybe set some firmer boundaries sometimes. Be a bit more kick-ass, because people... I don't want them to see me as, like, you know, vulnerable, you know. I, I just... I think my regret before was that I was too polite to people who were just, you know, rude to me. Kick-ass, you know, we're going to have to get doing... Um, we are doing linguistics and everything for that, man. Yeah, but you mean, because, like, it, then it can, as you said, get... You can get a bit like frustrated then, and you just want to be like, as you said, around people that not rule to you. And then I guess it's trying to visualize what support you need, being able to see the support out there, and just finding a way of like being able to ask for it and ask for you, being comfortable in the win what you need. Yeah. Yeah, so like what what things now have you found yourself being needing to put in place to help help yourself? Well, I feel like I need to recognize when I'm close to meltdown or burnout and then I need to, you know, find a safe space, maybe my bed or duvet. You know, I I just but then I just need to ask for more stuff like say, can you unscrew the lid of my bottle because I have manual dexterity issues and you know, a lot of people do. Yeah. Can you get that for me? Because I can't reach. I guess probably like at times when probably being like autistic and cerebral palsy, I guess for something when you're like burnt out and tired, then like I guess then you know like communicating keys and then can like get started like find a way of asking for something then if you're getting a bit more tired. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like by asking, you know, like I. Well, I use the phrase like neurodivergent guilt, you know, where you constantly feel like an inconvenience by, you know, just needing things to be made accessible for you, which, you know, I, I'm very apologetic just because I, just because I've been constantly made to feel like an inconvenience in this ableist society and I have to then, you know, unlearn that and yeah. realise it's not my fault. And yeah, I understand that kind of feeling like guilt all like yeah that internalized feeling that you like can end up feeling you feel like you're sorry or like you have to apologize for something that's innocent or for there's nothing wrong with like as i said needing and asking for like the best support and so what what do you end up noticing then as the signs of your own meltdowns and all like what can you know cause yourself burnout i think well pity i feel like can cause me um, to burn out like hyper empathy or whatever, but sometimes it can be hard to recognize whether my burnout is related to just being busy 
the day before whether it's to do with like my feelings so then i have to identify which one it is yeah because like i guess sometimes when you've got like processing issues it's hard to process log in in your own mind that you're feeling like tired or burnt out and then it's sometimes yeah. you're gonna feel like it's too late from noticing it and then you head into that space sometimes mm. it's like finding a time in a day it's like checking with yourself and checking with how yeah. you're feeling yeah, because I, I, I have emotional processing delay, so often, like, yeah. something something distressing happens to me, or I've been a bit anxious, but then I just kind of just pass it aside, and also, you know, when I'm in an environment where I have to do something, you know, such as college, it kind of acts as a distraction, and then I get home, you just do whatever, like, extracurricular, eat my dinner, and then the next day I, like, wake up and start crying and I'm like oh why there's people like why why are you crying now you know it's just like because I've just processed and I'm like oh my god that yeah that uh, that upset me and I am worried about that when that used to happen at school people used to you know my teachers would be like but you seemed happy yesterday and I'd be like yes because I was either masking or because I was because I was distracted it's like you can't you think people think well you look fine you must be fine it's like no I have loads of hidden problems anxiety yeah. that you're not aware of yeah because like I guess if you're like quite busy at the time so like as you said you've got college then you come like back from college to to win like very like stuff you like around the house so like you know like as you like all this stuff and then you, you know, like you got maybe extra college work or said extracurricular stuff. I think it's like you got sometimes you may not, you may be masking, but you got like a long list of stuff going on in your mind to focus on. Or oh, how are you? And then you kind of think that you're like and haven't like had time to process and thought, oh, aren't I? Yeah, you do. You say a lot of stuff to just please others, you yeah. know, it's not actually fun. And because, you know, as an autistic person or cerebral palsy person, you know, you're dealing with a, with a different neurological reality, so you're made to feel like you're, you know, um, your feelings or sensory sensitivities are irrational and then, you know, no one can really relate to them. Yeah. And I think, like, because, like, sometimes, like, I think it's hard to translate. And I think with being autistic and, like, talking about the empathy thing, and I think it's, like, like the real challenge. Like, you know, it's, like, that struggle of seeing what's going on in somebody else's mind. So, like, it's, like, then that's the thing that we can find that bit difficult in that moment. Because, I mean, um, some of us have um, Alex... Thymia, which is where we struggle to recognise our feelings, and if we struggle to recognise our feelings, how are we going to know what to do to make them better, you know? Yeah. And I feel like, ironically, I feel like holistic people need to be more empathetic. Yeah. The reason why they're not is because they can't, they can't go inside our brains. They're like, it's not that noisy. It's like, yes, it is noisy, you know, because oh, it's, it's hard. Well, I kind of think with with that, you know, I, I wonder if it's because, like, be, like being autistic or, like, diagnosed with, like, any condition that can affect you mostly or, like, how, like, you process things. 
and if it's like from that diagnosis, you do so much research about what autism is and how it affects you and how it affects the mind. That in yourself, you know, you you like try to learn a lot about your own mind and like do a lot of research and try to like to actually like fit like fit on you know, and to mask. You can do a lot of social research there. Because, you know, you put in that extra effort in, all I stick, I wonder, because you don't have to put in that extra effort. I wonder if then that's the reason why some people may not, you know, like, bother to actually think what's going on in somebody else's mind or empathising like that. Yeah, and it's like, well, if you, well, if you've coped for so long, then you can cope now. And it's like, no, because... Not knowing I was autistic and masking for yeah. long periods of time just led to loads of trauma and mental breakdowns. So I think I'm not really finishing off saying something. Yeah, or like um if like I you know or if I'm like crying having a meltdown and I'm like, you know, I'm reacting to this, this is how it feels because I'm autistic and they're like no, it, it's not because you're autistic. And I, I get that that's said in a well-meaning way because, yeah. like, you know, they want me to feel like I'm not alone, but then it is because I am autistic, you know. Yeah. And then, like, when people say, like, everyone's a little bit autistic, I feel like they say that as, like, you know, to make you feel better, but they're actually undermine, undermining your struggles. Yeah, because by that saying everyone's a little bit autistic, it kind of raises, you know, like being autistic and what autism is. I think sometimes yeah. when, like, it's like a bit more for microaggress than, than that, is when, like, maybe, like, like if you're like, oh, like an autism treat or like something that's a bit more autism related, then it says, oh, everyone can get a bit like that. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's well intense. And, but then, you know, like, it's not like that because, you know, like it's, Guess it's not how your brain functions and works. So yeah. there's that struggle. And, and when you like saying about the diagnosis itself, like when you get your diagnosis and start to get the support in place, then that's the point, I guess, when it turned that cycle of creating trauma. Yeah, you know, people say, well, you, you know, you didn't used to do that before or have conversations about, you know, autism before, and it's like, but having that diagnosis it kind of feels like it's you know given me permission to do that and I finally understand myself you know yeah. and I, I feel like you know people it, you know I want you know when when people are diagnosed for their family and friends to congratulate them because it, it's a good thing they're gonna get the support that they need rather than going oh I'm sorry or oh you you know you don't look autistic you know um you know you 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 know you've done you've done very well and it's like well yeah you know masking it looks effortless but it's not because uh, I told, yeah, yeah I told my friend the other day and they 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 were shocked and they were like you know that that's strange but they you know they they work with autistic adults and sometimes people may realizations about the autistic community without knowing that I'm part of it which I can get quite offended by yeah. even though obviously they don't mean to. Yeah I guess it's because it's like 
you can't see like somebody who's autistic. Then you know, like they, you know, like there's no way of like assuming if somebody is or is not autistic as you was playing there. And then it's like you know when you get the, like diagnosed as being autistic, that should be like a good thing because like then in that moment you should be finally able to play that word understand who you are yeah it's really like you know like like i say like it's that piece of information that you were denied for so long and now now i can now i can stop beating myself up for you know having emotional regulation sensory difficulties and hyperfixations and special interests you know i don't have to wonder like what is that anymore like whenever thing i was going to ask you is like what like you know to you or from what you understand about like like cerebral palsy and like stuff like dyspraxia praxia and like stuff we understand about movement and autism so like what do you think uh, like pe- some people know about the dis- distinctions and any overlappings between uh cerebral palsy and ever neurodivergent conditions that affect movement well, I have a friend who's dyspraxic, and I found that it's quite similar to cerebral palsy in the way it affects them. Like, we both struggle with fine motor skills, um, spatial awareness, processing. So, yeah, it's quite, yeah. Um, so, I feel like dyspraxia and cerebral palsy are quite similar, even though the causes can be different. Yeah, sometimes it's so. I. I have spastic. I don't have dyskinetic cerebral palsy, which causes um, like involuntary movements. So it's generally quite easy to tell whether it's a muscle spasm or um, stimming. But sometimes I do like I press my hands together um, or like put them in spider position, and also like my my strong starter reflex. I don't know whether again that's an autistic, a cerebral palsy, or a hybrid trait, so that can be quite difficult to decipher. Yeah, I guess then that's, like, because you've got the two conditions then, I guess, when you're stimming or when you're having uh, something really, like a movement uh, triggered by your cerebral palsy, I guess, then it's hard to distinguish between that, and I guess that's something that, I guess, something that, you know, maybe autistic people need to recognise within, like, intersections within our community who have a physical condition like cerebral palsy. So, but is there any other things that people, like, within the autistic community should know about cerebral palsy or the neurodivergent community about cerebral palsy and to support people with cerebral palsy? Well, I would say that my friends are already very considerate because they have support needs themselves. They're... Um, I would say that they're better at like um considering access and you know checking for access than um holistic or neurotypical people. Um, I would say that like also some neurodivergent people have do have mobility impairments caused by chronic pain, which also helps with you know understanding access if they've experienced that themselves i would say because cerebral palsy is rarer than autism it's probably more that in the cerebral palsy community 
they need to acknowledge that autism is more common and that cerebral palsy individuals and autistic individuals need specific help and like it can be very difficult like for example like going to physiotherapy you know when when they're trying to get you to do exercises and you're just screaming and having a meltdown so I feel like medical professionals like you know physiotherapists occupational therapists need to be aware you know um when it's like being autistic or having an autistic child and that sometimes it's really challenging to get them to do stuff because sometimes they 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 really don't want to you know sit on a plinth or go in their standing frame they're like ah and if they're you know having a meltdown and arching their back that's really hard you know so yeah Oh yeah, it's the same. So basically, like it's like you think that rather than more awareness in the autistic community, and like it needs to be a focus on like guess people who work within support networks, to support people with cerebral palsy. That that ne- those networks need to uh, understand more about the autism experience and how to basically understand, uh, like autistic people's needs. Like Renny and his autistic person with cerebral palsy on a condition is in physio or not. Yeah, and I feel like there needs to be more of an emotional support network for um, both the cerebral palsy individual and their um, like caregivers um, because it's hard for their caregivers um they can feel very alone but it's also hard for um the individual who's cerebral palsy because obviously they they have an awareness that they're cerebral palsy and they can feel very self-conscious and very like well why do i have to do this therapy you know if if my peers don't why am i expected to go through traumatic medical procedures that you know my neurotypical friends and siblings wouldn't be expected to you know yeah that's a good point about making so that for people who are cerebral politic have like a support network and like able to have emotional support and i guess like from what you're saying there it's like being neurodivergent or neurotypical as a person with cerebral palsy it would help to have access to like emotional therapy and talking therapies for both the caregiver and both the person with the uh, cerebral palsy yeah and so and also you was talking about like different uh, types of cerebral palsy as you said you have spastic cerebral palsy is it and what are the other types of cerebral palsy for people to know and understand a bit more about cerebral palsy yeah, so spasticity just means um, stiff muscles, um, but it's obviously been ameliorated now um, as more of an insult. Um, yeah. You know, but, it, but, but it's not actually, the adjective spastic isn't offensive. It's only, you know, when people use like spas as a verb, you know, like. Yeah. As a, as a, that's a derogatory term meaning like you know you're a bit stupid but it's actually not an offensive term then there's dyskinetic which means that you make involuntary movements and um your tone fluctuates between hypotonia and 
um hypotonia and then there's um ataxia which means uh that you're quite shaky and wobbly um yeah but rosie jones um the comedian has this type yeah because i think one one thing we do we hear the word cerebral palsy and think one thing i i don't know is like i do not know enough about it because like I think when it comes to the other types of cerebral palsy, and I work in fact a person, it's one thing that we don't hear enough of. Yeah, and I feel like because I mean, um, good for her, you know, Rosie Jones is um kind of ubiquitous now, but because she's the most well-known cerebral palsy person, um, I feel like it's kind of misleading people because she's got actually the rarest type of cerebral palsy. So, you know, a lot of individuals aren't like her and I don't feel like she should be our only representative. Yeah, because, like, I do think for, like, Rosie Jones, I think for, you know, being one person within the community and not one person who you will see on the TV the most and, like, it's kind of, like, the only person you really see on TV with cerebral palsy, then I think it's a lot of pressure to represent, like, a diverse group and a diverse group in terms of, like, uh, cerebral palsy affects a person differently and, you know, like, there's no one experience of it, I think. No? Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like tokenism. They're like, well, we've ticked a box. Or they're like, you know, when, when, um, when, like you know, screenwriters are writing stuff where they're like, well, we can't be symbolic of every autistic person that's out there, so we're just going to have a, you know, amalgamation of traits stolen from other individuals and just mix them all together, and then, you know, chances are that you won't really relate to that. Well, you might relate to some of it, but, you know. Yeah, and I guess you like be like with your in, intentions to be like a, a screenwriter or scriptwriter, as you said earlier. I think then you can't pay consciences about re- representation then and representation of the communities you belong to, and like kind of getting accurate, accurate representation then. Because because when I, yeah, when I was younger, I didn't see myself represented. You know. At all, as I've said, and I feel like actually, you know, um, with screenwriters and directors who are actually autistic, then, you know, you get the purest representation. And it's like yeah. I said, nothing about us without us, you know. And, you know, we, we could do a, I could do a TV series, which is, you know, just about neurodivergent people and they're, you know experiences like a neurodivergent cult so that you know i'm representing all you know neurodivergency rather than just you know cerebral palsy and autism because it's impossible to represent everyone in that community just with one you know mouthpiece hey right on or like with the one story as i say you know it's about getting kind of like 
like um, more widespread and more people, like a greater number of people being able to be represented. So, uh, but you know, where do you find the current representation of disability in media? And where do you likely see things going? And where would you like to see things improved? Well, I would like to see, like, you know, representation of disability in the media that actually involves disabled people and you know that that is changing there are um there are disabled screenwriters you know and, and comedians that write for um television or stage such as Francesca Martinez and Lawrence Clark um i think we need to get kind of more spot on with the representation of autism that it's not that it's not a superpower or a tragedy and it's not just the it's often portrayed like as the family members that suffer um when it's actually you know the it's like oh it's so difficult when it's when it is actually difficult for the autistic individual as well and again like not we're seen as very ap- apathetic, you know, or like savants. <laughs> That's quite harmful, I think. Yeah, and I think when, when as you were just saying about autism, then in representation and in the media, we often hear from like autistic parents of autistic children or medical professionals more than we hear of autistic people than they themselves. <laughs> and I think, yeah, yeah it kind of goes beyond like disability communities like you see with like the trans community so it's like you do see a lot in the media right now and like I guess then that could lead to a more transphobic or or ableist media would you see that yeah Yeah, because I feel like um disabled people actually don't have a voice and they're you know organizations don't actually tend to consult them when it's about them, you know, that might be because they can't access stuff, so they can't, you know, physically get in the building, or it might be because, like, I know that, for example, Sia in her motion picture music fired an actress for being too autistic because she needed, like, her support needs to be facilitated and it's too overwhelming for her. So it's just like, well, it's just easier to cast an holistic actress. Boom, you know, it's like... Yeah, and I mean, it's got to have, like, get to the point where we actively have when people went into acts, have, like, doors open and get the doors open for us into, like, certain positions of the media. And, like, otherwise, you know, like, it's still the case that able people are dominating and, like, still people who get to choose which disabled media people get into positions within in the media we need to see disabled people in all industries like not just you know the paralympics or the fashion industry yeah no i mean yeah, it's exactly that because you know like you can see this a lot both better like it could be like the industry of like politics to the industry of law or like what very different areas within society that yeah. disabled people deserve a place to be Yeah, I think in a way, though, um, knowing that there was lack of, like, disabled people in the film industry made me want to go into it even more because there was a lack of representation. I was like, well, if no one's going to represent me, then I'm going. 
represent uh, myself and I'm going to make that change. That's amazing. And I think that's the only way we can do things is by uh, like in a like finding that ambition or like that like termination and drive within ourselves to be able to do it, even though it's an incredibly different cult thing to find in within yourself. Yeah. Uh, especially if you got like like kind of like struggles with the uh, you know like like burnout and stuff like that, you know, like it's a lot to work on on to get to that point. Yeah, and we will we will get there, but every kind of revolution is is slow and you know, we just yeah. have to be patient because I feel like it's gotten a lot more positive in the last few years. Yeah, as as it's like it's a journey, not an event really. Yeah, we just we have to stop waiting for change and just take action. Exactly. Like you like I could see on on Instagram you posting a bit about uh, stuff relating to anxiety, general anxiety and about like what can be triggers for anxiety for autistic people. Well, um this is a really good question because I feel like you don't have to have an anxiety disorder as such. Like you just have as an autistic person, you're just anxious, like, it's just on the surface of your emotions, you know, because just going out in, in public is, you know, there are so many different anxiety triggers, but because we may, typically, we may not have the worries that holistic people have, you know, we may be scared to express them, or we may be misunderstood. Yeah, that is definitely a fact, you know, because, yeah, I suppose, like, if they, you know, like, had any experiences with, like, ableism or, like, certain trauma, like, masking in itself, I think masking can be triggered and attributed by anxiety. Yeah, up until recently, I was, I was scared, like, what if my mask held off and then people didn't like me anymore because he's kind of like, I've been presenting, you know, myself so... Because this is so long, would they still would they still like me if my mask held off? Like you say in your bio, you have to unlearn to mask. Yeah, because as you say, it's like a process and not an event unmasking. So yeah, other emotional things do, does go through your head while trying to unmask. So well, like yeah, I think having a tribe of neurodivergent friends has really helped because you know no one's gonna bat an eyelid if you stem a wet air defender or don't give eye contact because we all do that and I feel like we kind of encourage each other to do it so it's a sanctuary for us I did quite recently get told um by a teacher like um following an incident where I broke down into tears like when I apologized because that's just an automatic response that please never apologize for being your authentic self which as someone who has spent years of masking that really hit me hard because it made me realize you know it's sad that people will that some people from my past will remember me as the holistic caricature that i created and not me you know and i realized that people you know they either accept every aspect of me or I just don't give them the time of day you know 
have to set boundaries. Yeah, and the thing is, as I said, these things kind of stick with you for years, and you know that I have a regret of not unmasking them, and like certain anxieties or feelings do like stick within you. So, as like sort of a music autistic person, to kind of like break down into tears and for the teacher to not be angry at me and not like shout at me and just not pressure me to stop that meant a lot and it kind of made me overcome a bit of my trauma that I'd kind of buried like you know oh if I have a meltdown then I'll get shouted at and feel physically and you know emotionally trapped yeah no I mean it's hard to find it does take time to like find that way off like lifting that uh, baggage of trauma or like that negative experience you've once experienced with either like a teacher or like a certain figure from your life saying so what did you find as a child were the triggers and causations of feeling overwhelmed or anxious in school or the classroom um you know this is really interesting because i always when i was anxious i always got like you just ask the teacher for an extension on your work but for me the work was the easiest thing because it's something i could control you know studying was easy I, you know that was what i went to school for example like where will you know i spend lunch time or break because if i'm you know I don't want to be seen to be alone, but I have no friends or, you know, what if my strong start to reflex or sound sensitivity get triggered? Um, you know, what if a triggering topic comes up in class? Is the teacher angry or offended by me just if I say something off or I don't give eye contact? Um, you know, does support need, having support or access needs make me a burden? And also with my hyper empathy, I worry even like, you know, if my teacher is overworking themselves, like if I go into a classroom and I can tell that my teacher's like quite highly strung, then I become anxious. I think it's also like feeling like you just, you feel like sometimes that the school is reluctant to have you because of your support or access and also emotional needs and you feel like then you have to like prove your intelligence and is it just are you worth anything if not for marketization because you know schools love that kind of they call it kind of aspect um supremacy where it's like if you're if, if you're really academic and you get the grades then they love you because of marketization but if you're not like that type of autistic you know schools are like oh we understand autism but they only understand a specific type of autism which is like the you know quote like you know academic or nerd and it's like you know no you know i'm not like that yeah it's like as you mentioned the aspie supremacy thing i guess you mean a lot you know like certain autistic people who were like either high functioning or high, well banded as high functioning but high masking or you know like had or like seen that had have highly in, in you know intellectual intellectual abilities banded by schools or like working establishments you know like performed better and this could apply for 
realistic or neurotypical people that, you know, if you're doing better in school and, like, getting the better grades and just seeing them, like, the clever person in class, something of you become the one that's rewarded on and that kind of thing runs throughout your life. It can yeah. be a bit, like, a challenging thing, but as it's, like, a thing that does impact thing, like, knock on, like, self-esteem issues and all that, yeah. if you're not doing that good. And that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it was kind of like teachers just saw me as the conscientious student, which yeah. I was, which I was to the extent, but I don't think we should associate like getting the best grades with like good mental health or thinking that because someone's academic that they're not struggling. Because when I was depressed, actually, like, work became my coping mechanism, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was a way of me just kind of to distract myself and you know I had loads of like you know um hidden you know struggles like in the classroom I was I was depressed and anxious but a, a, you know a teacher wouldn't have known that as long as I was doing my work and also because I because I did like you know um volunteer my opinion a lot in class so they're like well you can't be anxious if you you know, speak. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's like, you know, like, it's the way that people in the anxiety thing is, like, if you, like, not visibly anxious or, like, not visibly having panic attacks or, like, like having physical symptoms of anxiety, then people find it's harder to see the anxious or acknowledge that maybe if I don't see you anxious, you're probably not anxious. And I think yeah. that's, Lot of it, lots of say that a lot of autistic people, especially the ones who mask, and well, I think a lot of the community face, yeah, yeah. And as you said, I think it's like you, it seems to be born, like you know, like seen like to be rewarded on, you know, where uh, you know, being clever, and, and I guess that may have led you in. Focus, hyper focusing on uh, doing like schoolwork or work itself. Yeah, because I felt like, you know, I had to, I felt like I had to prove something. I felt like, you know, the school were reluctant to have me. I was really like, you know, needed support with like physical stuff. So I felt like, you know, I just had to be good at like, I just had to be good at, um, the academic side of things otherwise you know I would be worthless which you know I know I know that's not true but at the time it was just like I really developed like you know perfectionist tendencies and the stuff. thing is like um, as I said it, it's not true but I think it's it's like and it's kind of like how you would like be put in the mindset because you know it's like it's not like you know like you do are actually like feeling up because you are that but it's like because like the school system or like the structure of schooling is kind of like made you to feel that because yeah like, yeah with school you know like schooling it definitely comes out because like if you know like you've been rewarded on like coming in on like you know like sports high attendance and things yeah. like yeah yeah high, high attendance is such a ridiculous thing like Yay, let's celebrate the people with the 
like um strongest immune systems and it's like uh and again you know some people who are autistic like you know or cerebral palsy they they need more time off because they get more tired or they have medical appointments yeah so then the way you feel like kind of shamed you know yeah i think it, it kind of contributes to like kind of the feeling of anxiety because thing is like anxiety in any mental health condition you should be able to like take self-care and like that time and space yourself out and you know if you have been burned out and all that you should be able to take the time days out you need to and thing is like I found from when I was in school it was like that that feeling of like fear of missing out being instilled from you from that young age can like of impact on the anxiety of feeling like you missed a day. Yeah, and like if I miss, you know, what will what will happen, and you know, my yeah. attendance will go down, won't be perfect. Um, you know, so yeah. much you know, happens when you're when you're off, and you know, it, it, schools just shouldn't like you know do that whole thing in assembly, you know. And I kind of felt like it's quite ironic because they do all that like self care stuff, like make a yeah. cup of tea, um, and like mindfulness classes. But I feel like it's to tick a box, like because when I was actually having mental health disorders, I don't think the school were that helpful. But that could have been because of funding and also because they didn't recognize, like you know the mental health disorders in the way that they presented in me yeah thing is it's like you could easily like i did wake up like a cup of tea in the morning as you used to do for school in the morning and still could feel anxious for today and like i think that it's yeah. that anxiety look back and that's where you can end up doing like two years without pretty much like without uh digging up and it did have those hundred percent attendance it makes you kind of like at the time you know, like, feel, you know, like, all right, to get, like, a 10-point gift certificate. But, you know, it's like, you yeah. know, why should you be put through all that anxiety for that? It's, it's the wrong sort of, you know, bribery. And yeah. No one, I, I don't know anyone who likes, like, a call-out in assembly, like, woohoo, well done, Aaron Williams for 100% attendance. It's like, no, then you'll feel, like, humiliated, you know what I mean? It's like, no, and then you know the whole thing like you need to sleep more, and it's like, well, what if I have insomnia? You know. Yeah, the thing is, it's like, I think in school it's okay used to taking a compliment, but thing is, it's like that it, it didn't help, and it didn't help mental health. You know, because like if I was that, you know, like it strung off like being so anxious about missing a day, and you know, like then it could cause anxiety, and I think for. Some people are changing some routine and the consequence that can like cause panic attacks or meltdowns. And the thing is, that's a high cost to pay. And as you say, it probably can affect people then on into the workplace. And that's probably like how you find uh, like school system isn't designed for neurodivergent people's well-being in place. No you know a lot of people don't think and it's you know the it the the hidden curriculum is horrific you know it's it's just with the bullying with the kind of especially 
you know, if you're in a designated sun unit and they just don't see you as an individual, they just put you with students with all sorts of disabilities, um, you know. And I kind of feel like with, like, when it was, like, with school plays and stuff, they just use, they just use, you know, us as tokens. It would be like, oh, yeah, we've got five sun students, and it's like, but, you know, the choreography isn't accessible. You're not, you know, it's not actually, yeah. for me, it's more for you to just be like, look at us, we're so inclusive, you know, <laughs> just for like an object, you know. I mean, so what, what were the things in school did you find, like, you were made, not made to feel like you were included there or part of the school, and how did you find that impacted on on you in a such a way, like, it caused you to feel depressed and anxious? Well, I just feel like, for example, like, have doing, like, a school play where the choreography wasn't actually accessible and it was like, you know, I couldn't move that fast in my wheelchair and, you yeah. know, it shouted at me like, you're holding everybody up and obviously I couldn't have yeah. that, but they just made me feel really guilty and humiliated me and, you know, in front of everyone and I'm not sure, like, if the, it was just, like, the teacher or the teaching assistant felt too kind of scared to intervene um but yeah or it's like like i was saying like it's like oh but someone with like you know that a cognitive disability can do that and i'm like yeah they have a cognitive disability that doesn't affect them physically cerebral you know it's like cerebral palsy is very different to say down syndrome we have completely different support needs and i just felt like they just kind of mixed us like they just it was all this big clump of like sen you know yeah and now i don't i don't i don't like to use um the the adjective like sen or you know special educational needs you know because yeah. i because of that association and you know when i got i got bullied and it was just you know, no one, no one said to me, like, it's not your fault. But if someone had told me that it, you know, that it wasn't my fault, then I would have felt better. But I just felt like, you know, struggled to fit in. And then I got put off socialising because of cancel culture. Yeah, I guess it's then, like, you don't feel that way off, like, being, like, you're able to be, like, talk to like a teacher or like uh, you know, like somebody within a school to ask for that support or like actually you say like oh I can't or oh, I can do this and that to be able to in school yes like you know feel able to advocate for yourself yeah like I do feel able now but it would you know yeah just I would just always feel like an inconvenience like so for example like if I crashed into something like. For example, like the um in like food tech once because obviously it was very narrow. I like crashed into this oven and then, like the teaching assistant made this whole like big display about it. So then, I had a meltdown and then they shouted at me and then obviously that made that worse. So then yeah, it's just kind of like you always just feel like you know traumatized and like you know they obviously just even though they never verbalize it to you and it's not their intention you just feel like 
they don't want you to be there, which, you know, obviously makes you sad. And, and I course I understand that, yeah, because it's like, you know, because like, it's like, then it's not like you've been bullied then by like a, a student and you made feel a bit bullied and, you know, like uh, discriminated against by the teacher or teaching staff and then there's ones who support to support you and then it's difficult then and I guess makes you feel yeah. a bit isolated and if you can't yeah. basically be listened to and there's not not a space and a time to be listened to. Yeah, although 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 like I was bullied by students, most of the ignorant comments I've got have been from adults and I think it's more like I was kind of a bit shocked and kind of felt a bit betrayed by these adults that were meant to like you know protect me and support me like my teaching assist that like during mm-hmm. that like phase like when um my teaching assistant like shouted at me in in a lift because I I was having a meltdown and I couldn't stop I was like I was physically trapped because I was in a lift couldn't get out and then I was mentally trapped as well like in my own thoughts and because she was just shouting at me so I was just kind of like or I'd be like you know can you help me can you help me put this in my bag and they'd be like no and I'd be like well you know, but that's but that's your job to yeah, us. Why definitely. are you here then? Why are you <laughs> here then if you're not going to do the simplest of tasks? Because yeah, if like you've been assisting, assisting for needing assistance with those things, you expect them to be that. And then they think, like, when you be being bullied by a student, there's a thing where like there could be like a teacher or like a head teacher that can intervene. And thing, and when it comes to a teacher. There's lack of that intervention, and it's like harder to find somebody that believes you and can like actually make some sort of change that can help. I think it's a lot better at college because hopefully my teachers understand me better and I'm better at advocating. But also, especially with the teacher that said, "Please never apologize for being your authentic self." I feel like. I can unmask around them because they don't seem to be like cut off by my <laughs> traits that can be a little bit weird. And because they didn't react negatively to me having a meltdown, I didn't feel ashamed or angry afterwards like I would have done. Like, oh my god, I've ruined the relationship. However, like, I think it may be there is like a bit of a difficult, diff- uh, different culture between like colleges, sixth forms, as to where uh, in school the comprehensive or primary, because like I think when like in comprehensive primary there's more chance of being either infantilized or just being treated negatively. And then I think with college and sixth forms or higher education, it's like a little bit more chance where you could be treated a bit more like an adult as you then are. I feel like obviously um due to ostracism and identity crisis like neurodivergent people are more like are more vulnerable to developing mental health disorders but it's harder for them to like find counsellors and they often find counselling doesn't help because they need counsellors who understand specifically the structure of the autistic or cerebral 
palsic brain and obviously they haven't had most counsellors don't have that specific training you know, especially if you've got like pda and a counsellor is like do this then you won't want to do it you know i feel like a lot of sorry well-meaning organizations like cams they try their best with like here's a glitter jar but i don't find their methods particularly useful yeah so first it's like the actual brain and for a while i did see a neurologist who was qualified in that so part of that was helpful and then it's like not being able to relate to the experiences that cerebral palsy and autistic people obviously being a wheelchair user being ostracized or how autistic people process information and like kind of their their inability to let go so like i i guess you could say hold grudges but that's quite a negative way of seeing it but i don't really forget about stuff that happened ages ago which may also be due to my long-term memory and then they're like what you know like there's no there's no point trying to negotiate that with me especially when I'm when I'm kind of in the eye of a meltdown because it's not really going to help me yeah I think that's the experience lots a lot of autistic people and after the trauma is created when you're like end up clinging on to memories and negative memories without it being like too like as you said negative but it kind of just how the brain works creating trauma and mental health and mental illnesses and it's not a treat of being autistic or cerebral palsy, being like depressed, anxious, and having struggles with mental illness, where you've got, as you said, certain mental health conditions like PDA, as you were saying, and OCD, then stuff like that can be from like past negative experiences trigger certain yeah. mental health conditions yeah like autism and like neurodivergent conditions in themselves are not mental health disorders but they generally do overlap due to not like not the like you say like not the not um actually being autistic and cerebral palsy but in response to a society that's neurotypical dominated and it's just i feel like although a lot of therapists are well-meaning they can't really grasp they kind of the the techniques that they use with neurotypical patients aren't going to work with neurodivergent patients because of the way their brain works and that's not really the fault of the counsellor either it's just the way that the training that they receive and i guess gave i mean it's more of a systemic issue than an issue based on one person or like the, you can be some individuals a bit more for the better collective issue you would structure around this and i guess you can link back to uh you know what we started talking about in school about schooling and like your anxiety with that and as I say that I think that's the like can be the starting ground for many neurodivergent people with negative experiences and traumas not being accepted and included as you, you didn't feel like you were positively included in your school experience if they had to have like the great technique port and the thing is that's like the first thing post of that experience yeah i mean like i think for example like my my anorexia therapist i mean she was brilliant because she was the first one who really well the first medical professional that suggested i could be autistic but in terms of like they were they hadn't had anyone access the service who 
was cerebral palsy, which I guess I, I found surprising because I was like, surely more people who are cerebral palsy have eating disorders, you know, especially this, a myth that because we're wheelchair users that we don't exercise enough or something, you know, which, which has been said to me, you know, once, but it was just like, she kept saying, she kept you like applying, she kind of latched onto these theories like, oh, maybe it's because you want more, like, maybe it's because you're jealous of your sister who's neurotypical or maybe it's because like you um you know you've you want more kind of support from like adults around you and it was actually the opposite like I you know I didn't want like too much like I I didn't want adult supervision because I had loads of it you know and it suffocated me and I, I don't honestly think that I'm jealous of my neurotypical sister it's just we 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 are different we are different people anyway, whether, you know, whether I was cerebral palsy or not. If anything, she should be jealous of me because I, I as a child, I got more attention because of physical support. That was just it. And I didn't feel like those theories were were actually correct. I saw you were saying it was anorexia therapist that uh, said that you could be envious of your neurotypical sister and that... Yeah. Uh, and to the, about the adult supervision thing. And I guess probably yourself, when, when you're like of cerebral palsy and autistic and having that, and you already said you got plenty of attention there. And I think probably with your conditions, I guess, then you probably wanted to be able to get, the, you know, your own independence, independence on the opposite of that. And how did you feel about that? Or suggested to yourself? Well, I guess I just felt like, why would you think that I... Why would you think that I want, you know, more... I guess more attention from, like, adults? Because I'd recently become more independent in terms of things that I could do myself. And then... But unfortunately, that was also the time when I developed anorexia. And I was just like, but why would you think that? Because the whole point is that I want to get away you know I don't like having like teaching assistants constantly glued to me I find that they suffocate me and ir irritate me you know and I guess I was just all a bit like I don't know I think I also felt a bit like defensive of my sister when the therapist suggested that you know I was jealous of her I was like no that's not that's not our chemistry you know yeah like I see Kind of the highlights what's not not okay for the within the system was like it almost seemed like it was in, insinuating or suggesting that it it was like you met your uh, struggle to read and and eating disorder was like related to uh, being envious and being like tense and seeking and I guess you must have felt a bit infuriated and frustrated with that suggestion because like as you imply that culture was totally the opposite of that and it would have been triggered by past trauma or struggles yeah. with like eating and certain stuff yeah i mean obviously i think there's like a also an assumption that it's just you know the the parents of a disabled child who struggle and that they don't have any self or social awareness whereas i do you know i'm i'm, I'm you know that that's not true that um that assumption because you know i 
I do, I have an awareness of how, you know, my parents have had to fight for me and how, you know, like, when I was younger I felt like my sister may have had anxiety that maybe wasn't related to me as such, but I kind of felt, like, bad that that wasn't, that her anxiety was kind of cast aside because I was cerebral palsic and, you know, I, I do feel guilty for that. Like, I felt guilty when, you know, like, when I was nine I had a operation which meant that my parents um had to like go to hospital with me and she was home with like my nan and my aunt and I guess I just felt like guilty that you know she had to be without them for a week and that she was anxious and crying because she didn't want them to leave and I I you know I I do feel guilty for that even though even though it's not my fault but you know, people just imply that you're, as I say, an inconvenience when, when you're not. And you know, I, I don't think, I don't think my sister either is, is jealous of me because from a young age she just always accepted. Well, that's how it is. You know, yeah. My sister yeah. needs more support. I think, I think probably like as you were saying earlier in the podcast interview, you're highly empathetic, and I think the high, high empathy is probably like. The part of the source of where you feel more socially conscious and more aware of like how people see you or like how you see others, and that's probably can trigger some of the guilt. And I guess because it wasn't exactly listened to by your anorexia therapist yeah. and like everyone around you, like within a teaching assistant at school, I guess that then that's probably like made you a bit more guilt feel the sense of guilt about, like, whoever see you, because if you think a negative, people around you will see you negatively as a therapist and as teaching yeah. assistants did, I guess that may feel like, oh, when that wouldn't see it, like your sister, but probably, you know, like, just like, it's probably like any other sister in any relationship, just like, and that's nothing of the sort, so I guess, can understand yeah. how that feeling would happen. Yeah, I mean, we're just like, we're, we're, you know, we're just, really you know it's it's the dynamic of siblings like you know we used to like almost drown each other in the bath but that was you know that was always you know accidental that wasn't like a you know deliberately oh i'm gonna drown you it was just like you know sister banter and stuff yeah, yeah. and i oh, did feel like sorry go on oh yeah carrying on with you i did feel sorry i did feel like um you know um when uh when people try and reach out for help with their mental health they're often like gaslit and called an attention seeker which just makes it worse because i think the fear of not like telling um anyone like when i was feeling when my mental health was at its nadir um i kind of didn't tell anyone because first of all i didn't recognize what was happening to me and second of all like i didn't you know i didn't want i didn't want attention so i think like when people when someone is like courageous enough to request help and then someone calls them an attention seeker that just confirms their fear that they are when it's actually the opposite because if they you know trust me like that the person who calls them an attention seeker obviously hasn't struggled with their mental health because they'd know that if they could get rid of their mental health disorders, they would, you know. 
And I feel yeah. like that's the reason why a really good friend of mine, the one who who's dyspraxic, they've been struggling for a while, but they're really scared to get help um, for fear of gaslighting, you know? Yeah, I think, and if, if as you said, you know, you've been rejected and gaslit and been uh, had negative experiences, then that kind of sets down from any uh, a potential of, of going to any like medical professionals, any mental health support team, because you know, like if you had a negative experience, then it creates an anxiety of being rejected again and because of negative feeling. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people like autistic or cerebral palsy people have so much um trauma attached to like medical situations or like me and my mum we don't really like going to certain clinics because it brings back hard memories you know either either medical procedures that were hard or like say like if I walked into the room and there was a cause and effect toy, because I hate those, and I also hated baby dolls for some reason, I used to, like, have a meltdown and stuff. And, yeah, I think it, it's very, like, um, multi- like neurodivergent people find those places very intimidating, being in a room with a counsellor. And they just say, because they're used to masking and stuff, they, they just say what the counsellor wants them to hear. The counsellor just tells them to do something. Something and then they go okay and just go home and just reject the advice you know and they don't actually say what was on their mind yeah and i think personally like with my experiences before with uh doing like counselors and having talk in therapy like i found like even though we're like yeah you make the like the counselor and they went okay that sometimes i just found that even with that you know like people aren't able to get their answers and like you start feeling the physical traits of anxiety because I think probably the most challenging thing is is being able to open up and start talking about your struggles and your mental health challenges and it's definitely you kind of like either bottle up and keep to yourself when you don't want any of, of us hearing about. Yeah, you know, you just feel very like vulnerable because you're about to, you know, pour yeah. your feelings that you've compressed for years out, out to a stranger and you just feel like and again, I feel like you're, as a neurodivergent person, your feelings and emotions are often treated as irrational just because someone can't go inside your brain and, you know, so it's mm. like, you know, I don't want to, like, confess stuff to you if you're just going to laugh at me or be like, it's okay when it's not. Exactly. And when and with anxiety, like, like it's a tattoo. You know, like you were talking on social media about your experiences with anxiety in the hospitals and doctor appointments, and you kind of like discussed like certain things like medical phobias, distress, worry, yeah. and getting a med- uh, medical profession to understand your needs and have patience for that. So, like, what's your experience with anxiety around? medical appointments and doctors and and the like well you know i guess um you know well the first is that you know if i walk into the room and there's you know like a a a stimuli that i find troubling you know i i can pretty much cope with that now but that's down to masking and rationality like okay there's a cause and effect toy there but no one's gonna press it it's okay but then yeah and then i think we would say that the more extreme is when you know um medical professionals ask you to do stuff and have quite 
profound conversations that, you know, as a young woman and especially, you know, because I've had them since I was a child, you know, into my teens, it, they just make you feel very, you know, it, it's unnatural. They make you feel very uncomfortable, you know, like they if they want to like touch parts of your, you know, body, it's just like, oh no. You know? Yeah, no, yeah, because there's such sensory discomfort with like being touched on, you know, like for medical procedures. Like, I always find that they have heightened sense of touch within medical appointments and get a bit of anxiety and phobia with it because, like, I struggle with, uh, you know, like the blood pressure count, mm. like the ones that are electronic. And before, like, it, I've been un unable to give reading because, like, I kind of like tense up and like get emotional and like yeah. and then and then you yeah. then you become more distressed because you know that they're trying to do something and then you're like oh but then that you can't do that if i'm too tense and then it yeah and it's just like i think you know on the on medical forms obviously you do have to specify if you have a, if you are disabled but i'm not sure if if the nurses or whatever have training on what that means and then you feel a bit like what i found is that they tend to like infantilize me and i just find that really like uncomfortable and quite offensive even though but I'm not sure if that's because um, I'm disabled or whether it's because they see younger children um, in in the clinic quite often, so they just kind of forget who they're talking to. I mean, yeah, there could be some laugh, but I understand you're feeling off offended or feeling quite wrongly because, like, as I said, if they, you know, like, see a lot of children, it can be that. But the thing is, you, like, when you look at yourself, they should be able to, like, acknowledge and see a... a like a young woman there that they uh, see into and not a child and I think maybe like with like having a physical disability like cerebral palsy and if like like there's the ableism of like looking at somebody with a medical condition like that and uh, like assuming that they yeah. can't advocate or talk like yeah. talk from themselves and I think mm. like previous issues like when they can like talking directly to you or try to address like your parent first before yourself mm, or yeah like or like the trying to rest your words I think just can be quite a challenge yeah like I think it's gotten a lot better now that I'm an adult and you know since I've gotten older they tend to listen to me more and, and consult with me but when I was younger it's kind of like yeah they talk to my I'd always find it quite strange at medical appointments because they talk to me like they talk about me and you know me being cerebral palsy like in, in third person as if I wasn't there and they'd be like oh yeah or like say if like my physiotherapists would like come into school for example and then they talk to my teaching assistants and then they'd be like children with cerebral palsy na, 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 and then be like I'm the cerebral palsy one just uh, like I understand that they were trying to be helpful and they do have qualifications but I'd just be like just ask me you know why are you talking about me like I can't hear you I'm right here and then I'd be like what is the point you know what is the point of me going like to meetings with my pediatrician you know I'll just wait outside because you're just going to talk about me for like three hours it's going to be really boring they always tend to 
because of like money restrictions and stuff and they they always tend to like focus on the positive like oh you've come so far you know since you came to this medical appointment with with a blanket on your head because of my sensory issues and it's like oh yeah and then like they don't they don't want to talk about like the negative stuff because they don't want to you know put that support in place so then if you're but from a parent's perspective, like, if your child is there, it's really frustrating because you know, of course, that they're not okay and there are things going on, but you can't verbalise it while they're there because then it feels like you're, you know, gaslighting your child. So it's kind of very, like, I would say that the way they approach that some medical professionals do that, it's manipulative and it's emotional blackmail. Yeah, I think, like, medical professionals are, like, a lot of people afford child care or child support in children with like medical reasons or you know, there's sort of thing where you're not really uh, consulted on as a child. Something that affects you at any age on any stage, you should be able to be addressed for firstly, you know, rather than like left to the parents and more more kind of left out of the conversation. As you said about the positive like uh, things that they tend to focus on, and I think that's like, I think for like like sometimes when I've been to medical appointments before, probably not as many as yourself, but like it's a the experience of like you kinda of feel like you were kinda of trying to be quickly rushed out to the doctor's office or something like that, you know, like you're trying to rush out to the room. But it is kinda of like, yeah, they're kinda of just doing their job and then they're like, Okay then bye. And some sometimes you feel quite like, you know, on the spot and intimidated. Like sometimes they're like oh, is it okay if, like, this is, like, Sarah or whatever, I don't know, and they're, they're, they're a trainee, um, they're a trainee physiotherapist, do you mind if they just come in and sit and watch our meeting, and it's, like, obviously, that makes me feel quite uncomfortable, but obviously you can't say that to their face, but then you go, and then, like, you're, like, you know, it's just really awkward, because you've got, like, like free free medical professionals just sitting there you know looking at you and then I find that I tend to like talk too much and then not actually say the thing that's that I really need to talk about or you know or they have like surprise guests like oh so and so from the wheelchair services is here today and I'm like I did not expect you to be here I did not prepare what I wanted to say to you I think like the only thing when they've been like in the room is like to to medical professionals, like, I may be, like, a, like, a really stage of, like, if any of them can take no satisfaction and stuff like that, so, like, speed of violence into, like, probably would have had any, like, that number of people in the room, and I understand that must be quite intimidating, uh, being, like, in, in the room with, like, several people like that, and I think, like, even with, like, the autistic struggle of it can be, for, like, if you're in a medical appointment, and like being trained to rest, you know, like to speak or like, and if you like, kind of got like a restricted time on your appointment, and it's like you like take a bit of time to get your words out with being autistic and that, and like in a like process and delay or like, yeah, 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 yeah. And set up for your words, then mm. you know, like it's hard to get out then. Yeah, I'm really bad with like with my emotional processing delay, like I've said, like you know, it, it can either you know be really slow or it can be it can be too fast like I respond to situations 
like quickly and because you know before I can because I can't like say if someone else is upset like they'll just be able to like recognize like okay I'm upset I'm gonna walk out of the room you know unlock the door get out whereas I can't do that so if there's something that like you know I get like a surprised conversation about something that's difficult to talk about or that's been bugging me I will probably like then have a meltdown in the moment and then it will be really distressing for me it will be distressing for like a medical appointment it was distressing for my mum you know be distressing for the medical professional yeah it totally gets up because you know like if like you know like sometimes when you like talking to like a therapist or like a doctor about something like that you know like it's kind of like Always because, like, an, of like something that's not easy to talk about. So then, uh, I think sometimes it's be like you need to get that space and time to like execute that and communicate out. As because, like, you were saying that sometimes you've got like quite a few things to say in like appointments, and then you're like not giving a time off. And so, like, I think probably like you feel like you need that like space and time to like get your words out when you need to uh, and be able to like ask questions and uh, basically like say, uh, like say things clearly so we can articulate for yourself. Yeah, like it would be better if, if they told you, you know, we're going to have a meeting and this is what we're going to, you know, like prepare a social story before you come and just don't rush me, give me time to like pros- process stuff, you know, and know that I find these topics sensitive, you know. What would you like find is like help us help to the advice that you would give to others who are struggling with like a classrooms and uh, help in a brief uh, statement? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Oh, right. Uh, you know, like in terms of when we were talking about the anxiety just then between yeah. classrooms and uh, health appointments, like to briefly start to wrap things up, can you like summarize what you help and advice that you would advise for other people? I would say, like, make sure that you read their EHCP beforehand. You know, actually read it. Don't don't skim through it because it, it, it includes vital information. I would say when, when I'm anxious, you know, just try and, like, tell, like, the person prior to the appointment, like, what your traits are, you know, like, so they can, like, remove troubling stimuli from the room and maybe bring, like, a comfort item. Like, I have a jelly cat called Jerry the Giraffe and, like, you know, next time I go to a medical appointment, I'll, I'll bring him to hold it. You know, it'll make me feel a lot more calm. I think the the main message I have for... The main thing I want... I wish that neurotypical people had more empathy. I think they're the ones that need to have more empathy. Because if you think, like, you know, neurodivergent people do so much to fit into society, the least you can do is try and adapt things and at least make attempts to understand them. Yeah, exactly. And you're right on the point there with, like, trying to get... uh... List them, you know, like get on of what helps you into a stressful environment. As I said, you know, like list of like 10 free challenges and you know what helps you like get uh, comfort and self regulate and calm down. So I think, like, uh, as we were talking about, like, then you know, like, sometimes it struggles to communicate. Then I guess having some stuff 
written down in the planning that does help. And so yeah. let's just start to wrap things up. What, what fun things would you like to change things for the better to help people and what would you wish people to take away from this podcast interview? Well, I think, as I said, like, having more empathy towards neurodivergent people um, and knowing that we have self and social awareness so we know that we're disabled and you know you don't need to make us feel guilty about stuff because we already know that we can't do certain stuff that we have quote flaws well they're seen as flaws in a neurotypical society you know i would i would say that and know that and know and know that we're we can actually be incredibly sensitive even if we don't show it in a typical way we understand you know what's going on we can sense people's emotions we can read the energy we know if things aren't right as you're saying it's kind of like taking our space and time to, to understand a neurodivergent person and like le- learning about them them and you know not assuming a person's needs and as you said that goes for like any type of disability and what uh is there anything else with me wish to say on the podcast and any way people can find you and follow you on social media oh yeah so my instagram name is um uh, matilda barrowman just about matilda and then barrow b a double r o w m a n so it's a simple instagram name um yeah i post things about um my experience being cerebral palsy my experience being autistic and i'm just a general like neurodivergent and disability advocate so i would love you to follow me and and thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast Aaron. i want to say that although like ableism is a horrible thing it the only positive is that it um because of that i do appreciate it when people you know attempt to understand me or or when they consider access you know when they let me teach them something you know i love to talk about being disabled you know i love to raise awareness i love you know it's my special interest so just you know talk to me